Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. We're in the second week of, um, of living contrary to popular opinion. And so if you've got your bulletin, you've got your Bible app, however you're going to track along, we've led with this idea that as culture moves further away from life in Jesus, we must learn to live contrary to popular opinion. Um, the truth is, is that it's just moving it. Culture is just moving further and further and further away from what God says is life-giving and right. It just, it just completely is. And so you and I have to learn how to live this way in a greater way, how to live fully relying on God and going with him. Here's the wonderful news. We're not the first generation to have to do this. There's a playbook. There's some instructions. There's some understanding to be able to do this. In fact, this is how Christianity began. Christianity began in space that was incredibly hostile, incredibly hostile to the truth of God's love and grace. What an amazing thing that the world has always been aggressively hostile to the truth of God's love and his grace and what he's accomplished in Christ. The Jewish community thought that it was blasphemy. The Romans thought it was foolishness. But the truth is, is that it's the wisdom of God and it sets us free. But the freedom comes when we walk in what he has called us to walk into. In fact, Paul writes to the believers in Rome, here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Now, just before we read this, just to understand, this is Roman believers, okay? This is people who are steeped in empire, steeped in power, steeped in doing whatever you can to promote yourself. And he writes this. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He let them know straight out of the gate, there are two real options for you. You're either gonna conform to the way everything's going in life, to the way culture and world is going around you, or you're gonna be transformed by the spirit of God that is alive in you. And if you'll pause for just a little minute in the presence of God, you will feel his sweet, transforming power at work. Some of you this morning, as we were engaged in worship, you quieted yourself a little bit before God. You began to think about his goodness and his love. You began to borrow the words that the songs provide, and you began to own them and to connect with them and and make them your own and, and think about him. And in that space, some of you very much felt the Holy Spirit begin to transform you a little bit in that space, begin to talk to you about the happenings of this past week and maybe adjust your heart a little bit, begin to talk to you about the worries of this coming week and begin to transform your heart a little bit. See, if we'll allow the Holy Spirit to, to work in our lives, give him room, he will do the transforming. It's not on us. We just need to give him space to do it. He's the potter. We're the clay. He does the shaping if we'll let him do it. Here's the problem is a lot of us just get in the flow of just conforming 
And I want you to understand from the outset, okay, um, I get the struggle of this. I get it. I'm not just some pastor up here. It's like, this is what the pastor's supposed to say. You're supposed to do this and this for Jesus and, and all these different things. I, look, I'm, I've been walking in this and pursuing this um, for a long time and um, been actively pursuing a relationship with God for three decades now. And I'm telling you, this is my struggle point just like it is for y'all. Um, how many uh, firstborns do I have in the room? You got any firstborns in the room? Um, just statistically, there's more of us than anybody else because, uh, you know, if you're going to have any, a first has to show up, you know. And so there's just, you know, um, you know, Pressy, she's, there's not going to be very many who join her in the seventh borns, you know. She is not going to have very many in hers. But uh, for those of y'all who don't know, we have seven kids. And so, but as a firstborn, um, I'm a firstborn, and just not, it's not true across the board for all of us, but on, for firstborns, there's a lot of us, there's just this pressure um, to just keep the family happy, keep mom and dad happy, keep people in authority happy, just keep people happy. It's just kind of the way this pressure is. Firstborns tend to want to just keep the peace and let everything go. And, you know, and then there's the second born that watches the first born and says, that don't really work anyway, so I'm doing my own thing. So, you know, you know, first born's too goody-goody and I'm out of here. You know, I, you got any second borns in the house? Oh, uh, yeah, I see them, I see them. So, and uh, so with that, so there's, but for as a first born, um, and then just the way my personality is and, and just the different things, there is, for my whole life, there has just been this pressure um, that I have had to learn to lay down at the altar of God that of trying to keep everybody around me happy and like that, that dude's pretty cool, that guy's okay, and, and put that down and learn to live for an audience of one, to learn to just live for him that if I will live for him and understand that receiving his love, not that I've got to earn it, not that I'm performing to get him to throw a little celestial smile my direction, but that because he loves me and I receive his love and allow that to flow in and through me, guess what? All of a sudden, I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better father. I'm going to be a better pastor. I'm going to be a better member of society if I will begin to do that. But I'm constantly running in to pressure. I do it in a grocery store. Cutie hates going to grocery store with me because if I feel like I'm in your way, like I'm standing in front of the spaghetti and you're like, look like you might want to want spaghetti. I'm just moving my cart. I'll just go like three hours over. I'm just like, it's yours. Just I'll come back. I can make a lap. I'm fine. You know? And then, you know, and cutie's an only child. She's like, I need spaghetti too. We can stand shoulder to shoulder and get spaghetti. I'll I'll wrestle you for it. And so, and, um, and so, and, but I'm like, babe, just get spaghetti and let's get out of the way. I'm like, I'm like in the way. And I, I just fight this constantly. And it's this, this people pleasing thing that begins to come in. And, and there's a space where culture begins to have create pressure. And then now with their ability to cast shame from a distance, to cast public shame from a distance with all of our social media makes these pressures harder. It makes them harder. And so we, we have to embrace this tension between 
the conforming and the transforming. And the problem is, is that all these pressures, these things to want to rely on and build our lives on, they push us toward things that just have no life in them. They're just not life-giving at all. And in fact, on Wednesdays with our youth ministry, our, our series we're doing right now is called Similiar, and a little play on similar. And because there are things the world that will offer that are similar, but it's based in a lie, and it'll carry this generation off down a trail that's heartbreak and destruction and to train the next generation up to discern between what's life-giving and what's not because there's all sorts of stuff that's thrown out there because something can look right on the outside and if it's not rooted in life, it doesn't have life at its core, it's going to bring destruction. And I learned this the hard way when I was about nine or 10 years old and um, gone to... uh, uh, my grandmother's house with my two sisters. Um, you know, my parents loved uh, me and my sisters wonderfully, still do to this day, but ever parents, they need a break from their kids, you know? And so they're like, all right, you kids need to go away to grandma's house for the weekend. And so um, they didn't even like go somewhere else. They were just getting the house to themselves. And so I quiet home for the weekend and drove us from Odessa to Andrews, Texas. And when I was at my grand's house, she had some really great trees that I love to climb. And those trees were in the front yard. Um, Then she had a tree in the backyard and um, wasn't as great of a climbing tree. But while we were there with my sisters, when one of my cousins, our baby cousin Summer, was staying the night too. So my grandma was having just a little, you know, grandkid sleepover. And uh, I'm the oldest in my in my uh, family, oldest grandchild. And so uh, for whatever reason, um, nine, ten-year-old Brandon Clark decided he needed to show off for a three-year-old cousin. And um, I don't know where that came from. And so, and and I forget periodically. Um, that I'm not athletic, and I had never done a handstand, um, and for whatever reason, um, I decided to do my first handstand in a tree, and so I'm just going to show off, and it seemed like maybe it was easier because there's branches to kind of prop your legs on and kind of cheat, and so, so I do a handstand in the tree, and, I'm, and I told my little cousin, say, hey, Summer, watch this, and so I'm doing this handstand on this limb in this tree, and right as I get just nice and vertical, um, it was a dead limb, and it snaps, and I just go straight down, just Superman holding that limb straight down into the ground, not like 30 minutes after my parents dropped us off. I mean, they got just through the door to hear the old phone with the, like, with the crazy like, thing, old school phone on the wall ringing. Um, yeah, Brandon's in the hospital with a broken arm. And, um, but when I went down, my cousin thought it was part of the trick, so it comes down. She's like, ah! And so she's three. She didn't know. And so, and um, anyways, and so I was just, had, had decided, all of a sudden, I decided to do something I wasn't built to do to try to please somebody I didn't need to please and based it on something that had no life in it whatsoever. And all of a sudden, we begin to do that. We begin to try to get admiration and try to get things in ways we're not called to live and basing on things that have no life. We're going to crash over and over and over again, over and again. And so we have to learn to live contrary to popular opinion. And the truth is, is that we will either set the culture or we will reflect the culture. Those are the two options. That's just the way it's going to go. 
will either set it or reflect it, okay? Now, we already covered last week, and you can pick it up on YouTube or our church website or Spotify or any podcast deal. You can pick up last week's sermon if you missed it. But we already covered, you know, the idea that for us to live contrary, we don't have to be contrary. We don't have to like be completely oblivious to things. Paul quoted a song to Zeus, and because the words were true about the one true God, he took those words, took a secular song. Actually, it was a pagan song, and it's in your Bible. It's in your Bible in Acts chapter 17. He quotes some unnamed poet some unnamed Greek poet and begin, and that's in because it pointed towards God, but he knew the popular poetry. He understood some of the pop music. He understood some of those things, but he wasn't shaped by it, but he was able to use it to be able to make connections, okay? You know, as to be able to live contrary to popular opinion doesn't mean we have to be weird and dress weird and all that kind of stuff. We, we, we can set culture and, and, and not have to reflect the spirit of the culture. And the truth is, is on that wall over there and that wall over there, there's there are thermostats. And right here on this pole to be able to give me a reading is a thermometer, okay? Um, that thermometer tells me the temperature of this room. Why? Because I care about the temperature of the room, and during worship, I can just look over there and see what I need to maybe relay to the team if something needs to change. Um, and so, but I can't do anything with a thermometer. It simply reflects. Somebody has to engage with a thermostat. And a thermostat can make a difference. You and I are called to be thermostats in this world. We're called to change the direction that things are going. And what we want to look at is, is dealing with the Babylon mentality. And we're going to look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying for you and I, for those who would believe based on the, the disciples' word. That's you and I. We The disciples preached, and it came through the years and the generations and the miles, and you and I have heard the gospel and he begins to pray, and Jesus prays for us. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Man, how many times have, have you and I just like, Lord, I just don't want to be here anymore. Not in a broken, hurtful way, but just come, Lord Jesus, rapture me. Come on, take me. I want to, let's go. And so there's this place where, Jesus prayed against that. When we begin as the church to have an escapist mentality, Jesus prayed against it. He says, it's not that, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And folks, I get the pressures, especially as parents, when we see how culture is shifting and moving in an unhealthy direction. And QD and I began our parent journey in the mid-90s. And in the mid-90s, it was, it was, the, it was you know, that was the present, and we felt, you know, oh, my goodness, what are we doing? You know, life is just, how, how are our kids going to be able to deal with all the pressures of life? And I had no idea about social media. I had no idea about 
predators reaching out to my child through innocently connecting on a device and through an app. I had no idea that all of that stuff laid ahead. I was concerned about life in 1995 and was genuinely concerned. I was like, Lord, you know, we want to have a family, but golly, Lord, this world is a mess. And Lord had to remind me that he would, he's protected the generations and his believers forever. And that's what Jesus prayed. He said, not that you take them out of this world, but they'll protect you from the evil one. I'm so grateful that now that I've got some years past 1995, and I'm so thankful that my heavenly father has protected my family from the evil one, that they have chosen to love Jesus and pursue Jesus on their own, that they have chosen to begin to live this out. I'm so thankful, folks. We don't have to be afraid of what's happening out there. We connect with what God is wanting to do in here, and that, that beats everything else. It beats everything else. Because he said that they're not of the world even as I am not of it. And as we begin to look at this Babylon mentality, we need to understand this space that it shows up all through scriptures. And Babylon existed in modern-day Iraq, okay? Just you want to know the, the, or Iraq, however you say it. And, uh, the, uh, but it's not about the dirt. Um, Babylon isn't about a locality. It's about a mentality. And, and it's shown up all throughout. And let's go ahead and look at first time we find this idea of the root of Babylon in, in Genesis chapter 11, early in humanity's existence. It says, and, and this group of people living together, this is, of course, after the fall, and it says, and, and then they said, come, let us build ourselves a, a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, when I was a kid, I thought that they were trying to build a tower into heaven, like they were gonna assault heaven and go after God. And, and of course, that's not what it was. They're just trying to decide that, you know, we're gonna build this thing that makes us look amazing. And see, so their, their motive was put in there. It says, so that we may make a name for ourselves. We may make a name for ourselves. One of the Hebrew words for God is translated simply the name. It's simply the name. And they're trying to make themselves equivalent. They're trying to do that. So they begin to pursue it. And because of their cooperation and because of it, look, God says, oh, something needs to come in. And God begins to come in and step into human plans and begin to um, undo them. And he confuses their language. He confuses their language so that they can't communicate and do that. And the reason he does that is not just to stop that generation, but because that was going to impact all the generations to coming behind. All of a sudden, there were going to be kids and grandkids and great-grandkids born out of those decisions. And he's like, nope, this is unhealthy. This is built to alienate me. My whole desire is to connect with humanity, and you're not doing it. And in verse 9, it says, and that is why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And the word Babel, which is the root of Babylon, is confusion. And this whole spirit and the Babylon mentality is rooted in confusion to take proper life-given thinking and break it and make it where it's unhealthy. 
and where it is broken down. See, this idea of Babylon mentality, it didn't just show up in the oldest references of humanity. It, it also shows up in the most deep, forward-looking references the Scripture have to humanity in Revelation. It actually shows up in Revelation 14 and 16, 17, and 18. But let's look at Revelation 14, 8. It says, a, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. This Babylon mentality began to affect every nation on the planet. And the problem is, is that this, this Babylon mentality, it's, it's intoxicating. But its intoxication is, is maddening. It, it breaks the thought flow. It breaks the way we make decisions. It breaks down those things and breaks proper thought. And it's the maddening wine of her adulteries. That a place of adultery is, is p- causing you to pursue something other than the one you should connect with. The one we should connect with is God. And this maddening wine of the adulteries caused them to pursue anything but the one you should connect with. And then also we find right in the middle of your Bible. So the beginning of your Bible, the end of your Bible, right in the middle of your Bible in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 10, it says, you have trusted in your wickedness and and no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there's none besides me. And this falls in a chapter called the humiliation or the humbling of Babylon. This entire chapter is about Babylon. And the spirit behind it, the spirit behind Babylon is is that I am and there's none besides me. It is self-focused. It is self-focused. And then here's one of the things is, is that it decides and it says good things. We don't follow obvious lies. We have, there has to be this thing that seems somewhat enticing. And one of the lies that we've fallen into and our culture falls into is this idea of do what makes you happy. Here's the problem is real joy isn't found in you. You can't find joy in doing what makes you happy. It just is a downward spiral. It is destructive. You, you just study it over and over and over again. God says there in creation, says that man's not, it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because we're designed to connect with one another. Life is built as we are serving and functioning with one another. But this idea of do what makes you happy begins to come in and begin to erode and actually begins to kill the thing you're pursuing, this idea of happiness. There actually was a study looking at the rise in reported clinical diagnosed depression. And these stats we're going to look at come from Blue Cross Blue Shields data. Okay, So these are people who went and saw a doctor um, got a diagnosis, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield are paying money to help these people with, with clinical depression, okay? From, and this is in a three-year time frame, from 2013 to 2016. Of course, social media is at its full tilt. Everything is still blowing up, but it, this, is, this, is pre, not, this is pre-2020. This is pre-pandemic, and so who knows what the data looks like now, but just in the space of 12 to 17-year-olds, 
our youth ministry, 12 to 17-year-olds. In a three-year time span, the Blue Cross Blue Shield reported diagnosis went up 63% in depression. 63% for 12 to 17-year-olds. These are people, this isn't just all those that go unreported, all those that go undiagnosed, all the 12 to 17-year-olds who are dealing with depression and, you know, mom and dad say, oh, you're fine, you're just being moody. These are people whose, whose adult took them and got them looked at, and it went up 63%. For 18 to 34-year-olds, our young adult ministry, 47% increase in depression And this generation that's coming up, it's an average of 50% increase. There is this this assignment of hopelessness and depression that comes in, and they buy it in the lie of, if I'll do what makes me happy, I'll be happy. And then all of a sudden, you begin to do that, and you find, nope, that's, and then you begin to lose hope. Because you're like, if I can't make me happy, where does happiness exist? Well, it exists in the presence of God. And his presence is joy and joy everlasting. But it didn't stop there. The 35 to 49-year-olds, whoo, I still fit in that category one more year. One more year. Uh, 26%, 26% increase for 35 to 49-year-olds. And then the 50-plus group, 50 to 64, they also saw 23% increase in the same space. Just this skyrocketing thing and impacting the younger generation. Those that don't have the pressures of a job, those that don't have the pressures of retirement looming, those that don't have the pressures of coworkers or have a significantly skyrocketing depression rate. No, it's this Babylon mentality is destroying Philippians 4, 12. This is what it should begin to look like for us. I, Paul writes, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Through him. All of a sudden, Paul writes and says, you know what? It doesn't matter what I'm going through as long as I know who's going through it with me. The one that goes with me all of a sudden begins to be the one that defines how my life is going, not what I am going through. And all of a sudden, that begins to change everything. So the, the Babylon's motto is, I am and there's none besides me. Now, I want us to pause right here because this message, the series, is not about us looking out at the world and going, oh, look at them. This message is about us, the pressures that want to shape us, the stuff that sneaks into us. Those who don't have Christ, what else are they going to do? Of course, they're going to be in the Babylon flow. Of course, they are. What else have they got? They don't have the Spirit of God alive on the inside of them to change them. Having the understanding is for us because that Babylon flow still wants to take us with it, still wants us to just ride right along. And so this series, this stuff, is for us to reflect and say, Lord, where have I let this Babylon mentality slip into me? And it starts with focusing on self. 
How many conversations do you have about yourself? How many stuff are you worried about yourself? How many complaints are about yourself? The Babylon mentality is sleeping, seeping in. Here's what will happen is we'll begin to elevate self. And in that, we'll be self-adoring, self-building, and self-indulging. I want it. I desire it. I should be able to pursue it. You do. It's just going to end up in chaos and depression. A God who loves us and is for us will point us towards life. If he's pointing us towards life, what's he pointing us away from? Destruction and pain? That means there are things that are destructive and painful that the Spirit of God will move us away from. But see, there's Babylon flow has two sides to this coin, and it also wants to lower God, and in lowering God, it wants to, us to bind to the lie that uh, God doesn't love me and God isn't for me and God wants too much from me. God wants too much from you. God's a too much God, all right. But it's not what he's demanding of you. It's what he's ready to give to you. It's what he's ready to pour out on you. His grace is too much. His love too much, his favor too much, the plans that he has for you, you'll embrace what he has for you. It's, it's too much. But his demands, they're, they're not too much. And as we look at Daniel, this series, we're reflecting on Daniel and book of Daniel. And I want us to look um, because there's something significant. We talked last week um, about this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who rules Babylon and he sends his armies and they march in and they take Israel and they take Jerusalem and they, they siege it. And then they begin to take all the stuff out of the temple and they begin to take some of the people and make them their slaves. And Daniel and some guys we know of, of their changed names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken up and hauled away from their homeland, made slaves to serve this king, and we see last week that Daniel was able to live contrary to popular opinion without being contrary, without being a jerk. And it brought him significant influence into the most powerful nation of that time, and actually the four most powerful nations of the time as one dominated the other, and Daniel just kept serving God and kept being useful and in this space, we're going to look at a story that this pagan king who goes in and literally robs God's temple and robs God's people and hauls them off has a grace-filled encounter with God. And let's look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. This is actually this pagan guy who raided Israel. This is his personal testimony, and it's written by him. And he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. It's like, I was doing good. I was chilling at home. Life was good. Life was awesome. And I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that filled, that passed through my mind terrified me. Now, this dream was, he had this dream of this giant tree, giant tree, covered the entire land of his realm, and it was fruitful and did well, and then all of a sudden it gets cut down, 
but a stump is left. And, and he's like, what happened? What's, what's this big tree about? This big, amazing tree getting cut down. And he asks all the wise men and sorcerers and all that. He even tells them the dream at this one. There's another time we'll get to. He's like, no, you got to tell me the dream. And, uh, but he tells them the dream. And they're like, I, I don't know. I don't know, king. And so they finally, this Daniel had such influence. They finally, they, they reach out to Daniel. And then verse 8, this is Nebuchadnezzar says, finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream and he is called Belshazzar after the name of my God, false God, and the spirit of the holy gods lives in him. He recognized the spirit on him and misplaced it. But it was undeniable that the hand of God was on Daniel's life. It just, guy who didn't have the right framework placed it with the wrong God. He said, I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. And he lays out the dream we just talked about. And then Daniel, who was stolen from his homeland and forced to serve this pagan king, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, did not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. He's trying to like calm Belshazzar down. And Belshazzar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. I, don't, I have to be honest. If I was Daniel, I had seen them come in and do what foreign countries do when they raid a country, steal me from my home, force me to serve at pagan gods, threaten my, my, everything I know. If I knew this was lying up for him, I'd be finally, finally this dude's getting what he deserves. I'm sorry, I just would. I, I need some more Jesus too. <laughs> but that is, that is not Daniel's response. Daniel does not respond out of bitterness. He lives so contrary. He lives so contrary and didn't respond out of bitterness and actually responds out of a place of compassion. It's like, King, you're the tree. And you're about to get cut down. And I wish this actually was towards your enemies. Let's just be honest, most of us would be like, you're my enemy. He's like, no, all of a sudden, he's able to have such compassion in a culture that felt like robbed him of his. Folks, if we're going to live contrary to popular opinion, we got to learn to not hate what is assaulting us. And only the Spirit of God can do that. And only only Spirit of God can. I'm not sitting here shaking my fist at you and telling you to try to do something that only the Spirit of God can do, but we need to open ourselves up. Lord, help us to be able to do this. In the verse 25, he says, and you'll be driven away from, from people and you're gonna live like a wild animal. You're gonna eat grass. He's gonna, he's like, you're gonna lose your mind. You're gonna go insane and you're gonna actually just leave your palace and you're gonna go out there and eat grass. Another part of it says that you're, his, he's gonna let his, his fingernails grow out and they're gonna look like the talons of an eagle. And, and it says, that, and, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by 
uh, for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth. He's given him the truth. This is the way this is going to go. And the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you. God's plan is for restoration. God's plan is to, for, to bring restoration. That's why the stump's there. And if you will just bend your heart towards God, he will bring restoration. I, you know, I don't know what you feel like life has assaulted you, chopped you down, left you nothing but a stump. I'm here to tell you God wants to bring restoration to your life. If you will recognize him, begin to invite him in, let him work in you. He wants to bring restoration into your life. And it says, and um, when you acknowledge that heaven rules, therefore, your majesty, now Daniel's heart of compassion shows up even more. He's already given him the interpretation. This is Daniel's heart. He says, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins. He's talking to the most powerful guy. You got some sins, buddy. Renounce your sins, do what's right, and your wickedness. Renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. He's addressing the fact that his oppression needs to be handled. That you going around doing what you did to my nation isn't okay. He's addressing it, but he's doing it in a way. And he says, and it may be that your prosperity will continue. He's like, you know what? If you'll begin to act right, we can all live for God. I don't have to make you, I don't have to root for your demise. I just need to root for your heart change. I just need to root for your heart to change. I don't have to root for your demise. I don't have to root for you to get what's coming to you. I just have to root for your heart change. And then we can all win. We can all live in his grace. We can all enjoy this. But here's the problem. That's hard. So verse 29, this was his plea, change your heart. The king didn't do it. And it wasn't 12 minutes after that conversation, 12 hours after that conversation, not even 12 weeks. It said 12 months later. So now the king's like, ah, that was nothing but some bad pizza. I don't know what Belshazzar had to say about this. He was taking an opportunity, but that, I think that dream was nothing. 12 months later, the king had 12 months to take the advice to repent. God, God is so forgiving, so patient, so wanting us to turn. 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence and my mighty power, my, my, my again, I've built up, I've glorified myself, I've indulged myself, all the stuff we talked about, for the glory of my majesty. And even as these words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven, this is what is decreed for you, king of Babylon, your royal authority has been taken from you. And then guess what? He lived like a wild person in and ate grass and the dew covered his back and his fingernails grew out like a crazy bag lady. And he lived out there for a long time. And it says, and at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. The Babylon mentality brings confusion. The Spirit of God brings sanity. 
and restoration to right thinking. And my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Pagan temple robbing Nebuchadnezzar is preaching good. This is some good preaching, Nebuchadnezzar. That he, he endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done at the same time that my sanity was restored? My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, for the people he ruled. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he, will, he is able to humble. All of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, understands like, nope, I'm not the king. He's the king. If there's hope for a guy who robbed the temple to have an gracious encounter and life change with God and become a minister of that kind of gospel message, don't you think there's hope for all of us? But the thing is, is we have to let sanity be restored. Let right thinking be restored. And we have got three simple decisions as we close this up this morning. Oh my goodness. First decision, I will exalt God. I'll exalt God. But Nebuchadnezzar said, I exalt the Lord. Psalm 145.1 says, I will exalt you, my God, the, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. And not just exalt God, we have to acknowledge God. We have to recognize he's at work in our lives all the time. First Corinthians 4.7 Paul reminds us, says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Acknowledge God about the, the, all the good things in your life. Acknowledge him. So if we're going to begin to avoid that Babylon flow, we need to exalt the Lord, acknowledge God, and then humble ourselves. I'll humble myself. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He'll lift you up. Our bottom line this morning is this, that standing strong begins face down. Begins face down. If we're gonna lift strong and go against popular opinion, we're gonna have to do it humbly. Not just humbly with the people we deal with, humbly before our God. Not just saying, God, I got your back, but saying, God, I thank you, Lord, you're the, you have my back. You're the one who can lead, and God, I'm going to lay my, and just live for you. I'm just going to pursue you. It's been long said that a man on his face can't fall from that position. If we'll just start in that space and let God work, man, I'm telling you, things begin to shift, and that begins right now in this moment. 
recognizing that you need a God, you need a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior, that God loved you, and He wants to give you something. He's not asking you to do something for Him. He's asking you to receive what He's freely giving. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.